Let me invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. One of the sad realities, I think, of uh, not just contemporary ministry, but uh, probably human ministry and human life is that we tend to have too much confidence in ourselves and our own abilities and therefore trust our own imaginations and creativity to carry out the work of God. And in so doing, actually turn uh, from the power of God into our own uh, puny replacement for it. Uh, One of the, I mean, to me, there's lots of things that embody it, but I came across a quote years ago by the pollster, George Barna. Some of you have probably heard of Barna as a pollster, but here's what he, he wrote a book about ministry. Uh, He's a professing believer, and he said this, if you study your market, devise intelligent plans, and implement those plans faithfully, you should have an increase in the numbers of visitors, new members, and people who accept Christ as their Savior. You see the connection there? Study your market, devise intelligent plans, implement those plans effectively, and you can do this. It's probably no problem to say you can get more people there, possibly no members, but actually your marketing plan and execution of it will result in more people coming to Christ. The minute you start to substitute man-derived, man-centered plans, is the moment you begin to shift the confidence of ministry. And once you shift the confidence of ministry, you actually shift the boast of ministry. First chapter, 1 Corinthians finishes with the words, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right, that that all of our confidence, all of our boasting should be in the Lord. And Paul starts chapter two by showing how the way he did ministry was actually aimed to produce praise to God rather than to him, the servant. Follow along, please. I read verses one through five of chapter two. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. You can notice the whole Uh, The whole passage or unit is moving toward that conclusion in verse 5. That's the the purpose to which he's saying all these things, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Why is that important to Paul? Because he wants them to recognize that if anyone should boast, they should boast in the Lord, right? So where they place their confidence will actually affect what they trust in and what they boast in. So there's got to be a connection, a a very important organic connection between not just this message that all boasting must be in the Lord, 
but the way in which we go about doing ministry, if we actually do ministry in a way that draws attention to the servant, that, that raises and elevates the vessel rather than the Lord, then we've actually undercut the very point that Paul's making. So what we see in verses one through five is Paul helping us understand that a ministry that exalts Jesus Christ, right, is, is characterized by three things as he walks through this verse, right? If we were, if we're to ask ourselves this morning, so how, what, what kind of ministry results in praise to Christ, confidence in Christ, rather than praise to the ministry or to the minister and confidence in the ministry or the minister? What does that look like? Well, in verses one and two, Paul, Paul essentially is saying this, rather than adopt popular style and substance, he focused on Christ and the cross. Look again at verses one and two. And when I came to you, that is the very way in which I came to you in ministry, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Notice in verse one, that superiority of speech. That's where I'm deriving the words popular style. And then he says, or of wisdom, that's the substance. Remember in chapter one, Paul's begun to address the fact that there were some at Corinth who seemed interested in and committed to having a more sophisticated style and substance of ministry. That is, if we will preach in a way that doesn't offend the Jew and the Greek, then we'll be more effective in reaching them. And Paul, your way of preaching the message of the cross is actually producing a stumbling block or a conclusion that this is moronic, foolish. And Paul says, no, it's actually the power of God and the wisdom of God. So if the message is the power of God and the wisdom of God, then you, you, you can't tamper with the message and you also can't tamper with it by the way that you communicate it. It's, it's, it I think we recognize this, right? I mean, we, we, I think instinctively recognize it that, that the medium by which a message is communicated affects the message, right? So if I, if I, if I'm communicating a message to you of somberness and sobriety and I'm doing it like with a smile and a chuckle, you'd go, that's weird. I deliver bad news to you with a, like, a, like I'm telling you a joke. You'd go, there's something off there, right? And if you have a message which actually cuts across the wisdom of men, cuts across the sophistication of, of man-made thinking, and yet you package it in the same style that they use. You actually adopt their style. You adopt their approach. You're inherently unleashing a conflict between the two. You're actually saying by your style of ministry that the message you're preaching isn't actually controlling you. And that's the point that he's getting at. I didn't come with that kind of superiority of speech. 
I didn't adopt my style to the popular styles of the day. Years ago, there's a I mean, a, a preacher who was on the rise and was trying to tell everybody how to do it, which is usually the way it works, right? You get a little success, then you get a platform, and then you start to tell everyone else how to do it. And, and his comment was that contemporary preachers should study and imitate the style of Chris Rock because he was this dynamic communicator. And if we really want to be good at communicating to reach our culture, we, we should try and pattern our style after that. Now, honestly, I felt like going up and slapping the guy, right? Um, some of you understand what I mean there, all right? But, but the point is, he, he's actually saying, take an eternally, an eternally permanent, fixed truth that has transcendence and applies in all times and all places, and you wrap it up in a style that's not only uh, passing and temporary, but profane in the truest sense of the term. You're lowering it. You're making it vulgar as in common rather than saying, no, this is the truth of God. This is about the cross of Christ. And, and, and that kind of an approach is always being marketed and pushed toward churches, toward preachers. You, you confuse popularity with faithfulness. And, and Paul says, that's not the way I came. And, and look at that word of wisdom. He's there, I think, directly addressing the substance question. He was not going to change the content of the message in any way. He wasn't going to subtract from it, right? He wasn't going to, to reshape it. He was not thinking, how is this going to be more attractive to my target audience? Because the minute you start to talk that way is the minute the audience starts to control the message. And the audience doesn't control the message, right? Churches and pastors are in the responsibility of delivery, not manufacturing. Right? We take the truth that God has given to us and we deliver it to people. We're not responsible for, part, uh, for, for the packaging and for the marketing of it. We don't get to create the core and the content. We have received a message and we are supposed to transfer that message without adulteration. Right? We are to pass it on as it was given to us. And Paul was not going to tinker with it. He wasn't going to tamper with it. He wasn't going to tailor it. He was going to remain true to it. Because as he will say in chapter 4, the standard for stewards is trustworthiness or faithfulness. Right? He, he wasn't going to be judged on a commission basis. Right? How, many people, how many people responded, Paul? Because your rewards are tired, tied to that commission. Now, Paul was evaluated by whether or not he said the thing God said to say. He needed to be faithful to that message, and he wasn't going to tailor it and twist it. And what, what does he say it is? Look at the end of verse 2, because I don't want to glide past it before we zero on verse 2, because it really comes right between these things. He calls it the testimony of God, that 
that what Paul was delivering was the testimony of God. So on one side of that phrase, he says, I wasn't gonna come with superiority of speech or of wisdom because it's God's testimony. And so here's what I determined to do in verse two, to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. Right, because the testimony of God is that he sent his son, Christ, and that his son gave himself up on the cross, him crucified. That that's the central message that Paul was committed to, and he wasn't going to bend on that because his commission was to, to communicate that message. Now, this is sort of striking. I think we could, we could miss Paul's point if we don't understand uh, that, that what Paul is doing, he's telling us the unifying center of what he was saying. He was in Cor Corinth for 18 months. I'm pretty sure he didn't just stand up and go, Christ, him crucified, Christ, him crucified, right? It would, it would be, it'd be uh, foolishly reductionistic to say that when he actually tells us in this book the kinds of things that he actually had taught them. What he's saying, though, is at the center of them all, was Christ and him crucified. Everything else would derive its meaning from its relationship to that truth. He didn't run off on pathways and leave behind Christ and him crucified. He was saying, listen, this is the message. The message of the cross is the message. That's what's been entrusted to us. And we're never gonna go far from that. Everything that we teach you about and have communicated to you finds its anchor point in Christ and him crucified. Because he was foremost a missionary and he was talking about how, look, just jump real quickly over to chapter three. And, and you can see a bit of what Paul's uh, trying to make sure we understand. Look at 3.10 because he's talking about his ministry of planting the church of Corinth, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's another way of him saying, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. I've laid a foundation, which is Jesus Christ. He'll say in 2 Corinthians 2, every promise of God in Christ is yes. And our response to God, our amen, is through Christ to the glory of God. Paul, Paul had that kind of Christ-centered understanding of all that God was doing for the salvation of people, that God was moving through his son, Jesus Christ, to provide salvation. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. There's only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So Paul consistently was pointing them to that central message now, sometimes, if you look back in chapter two, or he, sometimes people take this phrase, I determined to know nothing among you, as if Paul had some kind of a ministry change. And sometimes you'll hear some people say, because if you, if you watch the, uh, the chronology in the book of Acts, Paul is at Mars Hill in Acts 17, and he preaches there, and then he goes to Corinth. And some have argued 
Paul made a mistake at Mars Hill because he tried to be too philosophical. And so when he got to Corinth, he said, I'm not doing that anymore. I determined to only know Christ and him crucified. I think that, I think that's mistaken uh, for a few reasons, but uh, part of which is they misunderstand what happened at Mars Hill. If you actually read down to the rest of the chapter, it says some believed. Right, So Paul didn't look at Mars Hill, I'm sure, as some colossal failure. The same thing happened at Mars Hill that happened everywhere he went. Some got mad, some got saved, some said, we need to hear more. I mean, that's basically the same response he had in every place he went. Right, And in fact, if you read the message in Acts 17, he goes right to Christ and him crucified. God has appointed a man by whom he will judge all the earth, having furnished proof of this, that he raised him from the dead. I mean, so he, he went, the God who made you has revealed himself in Christ, and he's going to judge the world through him because he rose from the dead, which you can't get there, right? You can't, you can't uh, skip over the cross if you're talking about the resurrection. I mean, he was, he's preaching the message. He wasn't changing his his approach at all. In fact, he says very clearly in Galatians 3 that he portrays Christ as crucified everywhere he goes. All right? So I think it's it's a false conclusion to say, well, Paul messed up at Acts 17. So in Acts 18, he started to get serious about the cross and him crucified. Now, this was Paul's ministry from start to finish. I mean, he he, he was barely converted, Right? And he starts to testify that Jesus is the Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, he, he knew that this was the message, and I, I, know, I think it's misreading it to say it. What he wants them to do is to know and understand that Christ is the only answer. And so his message continually came back to Christ. Everything found its organizing reality in Jesus Christ. Okay, that was the key to it and what he was laying out for them. Look at verses three and four, because here's the second characteristic. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So second characteristic of the kind of ministry that exalts Christ is rather than seeking effectiveness by his own personality and persuasiveness, he depended on the Spirit's power. Rather than seeking effectiveness by his own personality and persuasiveness, he depended on the Spirit's power. Look at verse three, because here's where he, he's owning, if I could put it this way, owning up to the very thing that they tended to reject. Right, He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. If you read through the Corinthian epistles, you'll find that the issue of weakness seemed to have been a real stumbling stone for the super apostles at Corinth. Right, The people who came in and actually appealed to the sort of pride of the Corinthian approach were doing so because they were exalted. They were eloquent speakers and attractive in appearance, the kind of dynamism and charisma that, that just about every generation of humans has liked, right? So it's not a 
brand new problem, but it was clearly the problem there. And Paul came in in a different way. He says in weakness, which uh, probably has to do with the fact that the poor guy was beat to death all over the world, right? I mean, we can sometimes, you know, we talk about all Paul suffered, but not necessarily think about the ramifications of that on his body, right? I mean, he's stoned and left for dead, right? He's more than once receives 39 lashes. He is constantly facing attack and peril, and it seems to have worn down on his body. In fact, it his, uh, his stay in the region where he preached the gospel and we get the letter to the Galatians happened because of his illness, right? He describes himself as being sick and there because he was weak. Hardships and suffering had mounted up on this man and he didn't try to run away from it in this sense because he actually knows, as he says in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, that God's Christ strength is made perfect in weakness. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter four, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so the excellency will be of God's might and not the messenger. He talks about bearing about in his body the dying of the Lord Jesus. I mean, he, he understood that the weakness, the weakness of the servant magnified the might of the master. And we, we sometimes, uh, not sometimes, we live in a culture that reverses that, right? I mean, uh, just think about how common it is to think about people who are most likely to succeed, right? We start young going, who's the one that's most likely to succeed? Who's the one that's most likely to do this or to do that? And sometimes it carries right over into our conception of ministry. Who's the one that's most likely going to be the one that has this ministry impact, right? We tend to view it on a human plane, a horizontal plane. And Paul says, like, he wasn't going to win that prize, right? At Corinth, it was not going to be, hey, we think Paul's the most likely to be the influential and effective missionary. Nah, not that guy. Let's get Apollos in here. He's got more eloquence. He's got more pizzazz, right? They were looking at it on a human plane. And Paul says, I came in in personal weakness, and it was evidence of the fact that the ministry of the gospel was not relying on him, his person, his strength and capabilities. Notice he says, in fear and in much trembling, which those could strike us, uh, as odd because we don't normally associate the Apostle Paul with fear and trembling. Uh, we don't, Paul doesn't say precisely what made him fearful coming into the end or trembling coming into these things. Um, we, know, we know that the ministry right before this, right, just, just I mean, think about his uh, itinerary. He's in Philippi and he gets beaten and thrown in jail. He goes to Thessalonica and he says about the time at Philippi, we suffered and were shamefully treated, right? So he was beat up and humiliated and Philippi shows up Thessalonica, preaches there for a short period of time, 
and a riot breaks out and he has to take off, right? He takes off to, to Athens, Mars Hill. He's waiting for his ministry team to come. They finally get there and he goes to Corinth, right? So, so he's just come off a stretch where there's enormous opposition to him, including physical persecution. And here's what we hear him say in Acts chapter 20, at later than this, right? But in Acts chapter 20, then when he's on his way back to Jerusalem, there's people going, don't go, don't go. You're gonna, you're gonna face all kinds of hardship there. And, and he says, listen, here's what I know. This is a little bit of a paraphrase. But the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city await bonds and affliction, right? So here you, you have a word from God that says, Paul, every city, here's what's coming. So when you stand in front of a large pagan city like Corinth, I think the natural human response would to have some kind of trepidation about that, fear and trembling. And, and actually, Jesus accommodates him in that because he appears to Paul in a, a vision before he goes into Corinth and he says, no do not fear any longer, for I have much people in this city. Right, so Jesus addresses Paul in his fear and says, listen, I'm gonna call people to myself through this. I will use you to see the gospel expand here. Don't, don't fear any longer, go in, All right? So the, the fact is that Paul could have that, and that may be why you see him so often asking the churches to pray for him, and particularly to pray for him to speak boldly as he ought to speak, right? He asks for them to pray that utterance will be given to him and he may speak the word boldly in Ephesians 6, that he might speak the word clearly as he ought to speak it in Colossians 4, right? Because it's normal human response to potential pain to want to try and diminish that pain, right? To know, we even talk about it. We talk about, I didn't hold back the punch. What we mean by that is, is that, you, you put the full weight into it. You didn't pull your punch, right? So it didn't make the effect because the reality of it is it's tempting when you're in a difficult situation and supposed to speak the truth to potentially pull the punch. Say everything maybe that you should say, but not quite as boldly as you should say it or draw the conclusion. I mean, think of Stephen. The people of the Sanhedrin were with Stephen the whole way, right? He's talking about the glory of God and all that God had done for Israel. They're with them, not a thing. And then he goes, but you, stiff-necked and hard-hearted, who always resist the Spirit, and whew, right? If he had stopped short of that, pulled the punch, he wouldn't have met the reaction that he did. And the reality of it is that's the temptation for all of us, right? It's, it's, it's a temptation for you sitting across from someone you work with at lunch. It's you across the fence with your neighbor. It's you with your family member. It's for preachers when they stand in a pulpit. The tendency potentially for us to think 
that, that if, we, if we actually don't step forward into this fight, we'll be better off. And, and so Paul came that way, but in reality, God gave him the strength to overcome it. It wasn't resident in him, right? He wasn't, I would take these passages to mean that Paul wasn't the kind of guy that we might think he is, who's just gonna march in and just say whatever he wants to say, and he doesn't give a rip about what anybody thinks about it. That it wasn't human boldness that, that enabled Paul to do his ministry. It was actually God-given, spirit-enabled boldness because in himself, he didn't have it. Look at, he uses the word in verse four, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. And it's important there to see that whole cluster of words, right? The persuasive words of wisdom. Paul didn't go, my, me- my message and my preaching were not persuasive, period. Right, Paul actually did try to persuade men to come to Christ. He, he says that he stands in the place of Christ and beseeches you to come to Christ, be reconciled. Right? Paul was not opposed to persuasion as in the appeal of the gospel, calling people to surrender to Christ, to turn to Christ. He was opposed to the kind of persuasion that is words of wisdom. That is, again, in the Corinthian context, marked by the philosophical sophistry. We get that word from it. That's the word wisdom, Sophia, right? He, he was trying to avoid a kind of Greek rhetoric that put the power in the style and resourcefulness of his speaking or of changing the message in a way to make it attractive. A human fleshly type of persuasion, right, that orchestrates the response is what he's against. Um, Think sales technique, right? I mean, it's one thing it's one thing if you're, you know, selling timeshares or cars or uh, some product, right? To be thinking, how, how, how can I get better at selling this? What can I do to, to really sort of uh, maneuver the person, hopefully with the ethics and integrity, but maneuver the person to the conclusion that I'd like him to do so he sees this is really the best choice. He's got to do this, right? And sometimes when you have a product and the customer's always king, you can actually tinker with the product to get that done, right? You can throw stuff in, you can change things, you can do all the stuff that you feel like you need to do to make the sale. But Paul says that's, that's actually not the way we go about it, right? We, he says in chapter four of 2 Corinthians, we were not going to adulterate the word of God or by craftiness communicated, but by manifestation of the truth, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience, right? The power of, of the persuasion must be found in the truth of God, not in the way in which we try to communicate it. 
right? We don't supplement it. We don't make it more believable. We don't create greater plausibility. We don't induce them to a response. All right, listen, I'll give you an example. Uh, there was a pastor on the other side of the state who was talking about shifting, uh, shifting their worship to change to create it to be much more of a seeker kind of a thing. And, 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 and he, he's saying this positively, but to me, it's like opens up the window exactly to what we're talking about. And I'm quoting, we wanted a musical style that would elicit a response. Unchurched people come to a service hesitantly. Their mindset is, you're not going to get me. Their defenses are up. We felt that a style of music that would get them moving in a physical way, nodding heads, tapping feet, that's in parenthesis, that's what that means, right? Would help break down their defenses. Okay, do you, do you, do you hear what, I mean, here's what he's saying. The lost person is coming to our service, sort of like, you're not gonna get me. So here's what we decided to do. We're gonna take a style of music that will get them doing physical responses, which will induce them to be more ready to do a intellectual or spiritual response. Get them nodding, get them tapping, get them moving around with it. It'll get past their defenses. So your musical style is the key to converting the heart of an unregenerate person. I'm, I'm trying to choke back my disgust at that, all right? But the utter arrogance of thinking that the gospel needs to be supplemented by our musical style, that lost people could just be one if we could find a way to get past their defenses by hooking them with the music and making them less objectionable to the content of our message, right? I could, I could pull out quotes for you, the same thing about the shift. There was a big shift for a while away from preaching to drama and, and same argument. Well, we found that drama gets behind their defenses, get them to laugh, get them to cry, get them to sort of listen to the drama and then you could sneak the message in. I think most of us would say that a, at least we'd have to say that's manipulation of people, right? That we're trying to bypass the intellect to get a response. It's not the manifestation of the truth that's appealing to their conscience. It's actually trying to get them to not be aware of what we're doing so that we can make them more receptive or responsive to it. That's the contemporary equivalent of what Paul was saying he wouldn't do. Right? And, and he wouldn't go down that path. Why not? Well, actually, before why not, look what he did instead. End of verse 4. Instead of having a message, the content and preaching, the communication of it, that were marked by persuasive words of wisdom, and he's meaning they're man's wisdom, he did it in demonstration of the spirit and of power. What was Paul's preaching like? 
he says it was in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. I think we need to cut off one false avenue that people go to. So what he's talking about here is signs and wonders. And I don't believe that's the case because what did the Jews seek in chapter one? Signs. And Paul says, I didn't offer signs, right? And even Jesus, when they said, show us a sign, said, here's the only sign you're going to get, right? So it wasn't that Paul showed up and goes, I don't have music, but I got miracles. No, this was actually a way of saying that his preaching was in the Spirit's power. I don't think those are two things, in the Spirit and power, but actually a combination of the Spirit's power, just like he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5, when he's talking about knowing that the Thessalonians actually were God's people, and he says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit, right? It was the work of the Spirit that converted them. That was the proof of the message. It was, in fact, that God's Spirit used it to bring these people from the power of Satan to God, to remove the blinders over their eyes so that they would see the truth, the proof as he says in 2 Corinthians, the letters that would commend him were letters written in flesh. That's them. You're the proof of my ministry there because the Spirit of God opened the eyes of your understanding. You came to Christ through the preaching of the gospel. And what he's trying to show them is the kind of argument he makes in Galatians when they start to shift toward works and he goes, did you come to Christ by works or by faith? Right? He's saying here, you're wanting to go toward sophisticated content and, and specialized eloquence. How did you come to Christ? Was it through that? No, you came to Christ through this guy who showed up and preached Christ and him crucified. If that's where the power of God was displayed in your lives, which brought you to faith in Christ and brought this congregation at Corinth into existence, why are you going somewhere else? Why are you looking for something more? Why are you turning after some latest trend or trick to try and build the church? The foundation that was laid was Jesus Christ. The preaching was Christ and him crucified. You've got to build on that same foundation with that same message. Don't turn away from it. It was, in fact, the power of God in the gospel that saved them. And now he comes to why. Right, look at verse 5, because here's the third characteristic. Rather than base their faith on the messenger... He built it on God's power or might, verse 5, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul believed, and I think he's right, Paul believed that using human wisdom to convince people of the gospel causes people to place their confidence in human wisdom. Right? If you adopt the popular style and substance of the Greek culture, which put its confidence in the orator, 
right? And his sophisticated rhetoric, his skillful ability by virtue of his person and persuasiveness to get people to it. Okay, and it wasn't just Greek culture. I mean, if, and maybe I'm, maybe I, this bugs me more than you because my, you know, my whole life is public speaking, right? But, but you watch what passes for persuasiveness in our day. You watch people stand up and whip crowds into a frenzy with nothing but stories, most of which are logically unrelated to the point they're making. They, they don't carry any, any substance of truth. They're emotive. They're, they're, they're manipulating people, right? Pick, pick whoever in your mind, don't say hub, whoever in your mind best epitomizes the kind of vain rhetoric that puffs up the speaker and manipulates the audience. And that's, that's what was being taught, right? You go back to the classical studies of rhetoric, right? And the way they got twisted in the Greek culture so that people could manipulate the masses for their own advantage or for some, some cause by which they could whip people into a frenzy. That's exactly what Paul was against. Because when, when the dust of that settles, people actually can't remember even why they're all lathered up, except somebody lathered them up. And that's where we are in our culture, right? A loyalty to celebrities and personalities rather than truth. Why would we ever adopt that for the ministry of Jesus Christ? Why would we ever build people's confidence in human wisdom instead of divinely revealed wisdom? So Paul comes full circle around, right? Remember, human wisdom is not going to be sufficient. It must be the power of God because God's wisdom is stronger than men, right? You see, when you put your confidence, when you build a confidence that's based in man's wisdom, then I think it produces celebrity Christianity, which is a version of the problem at Corinth. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ, right? They all had their, their big name that they were gonna hold to and follow. And, and whenever you put the center on the messenger instead of Christ, that's what you end up with. And we live in a culture that just feeds that. Okay, don't, don't hear me incorrectly, all right? Because I, I, I don't have, I don't think Facebook's a sin or Instagram's a sin. But when servants of God are using those to create an image for themselves to expand their platform. That's feeding the celebrity culture of Christianity. Right? And, I, you know, I, I preach in conferences and I'm not saying this with any kind of like, it's not a, a humble brag. It's like, they have no idea who I am and they're not there for me. Right there, there, there. I mean, because there are there are almost like groupies, and I can watch them. Like, I mean, I'd be, you can be standing here, 
and everyone's lining up to go talk to this big name person and 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 wanting their you know selfie taken with them and picture and get them to sign everything because we've created a celebrity culture in Christianity which is making more of messengers than it is Christ and it's going to end up damaging the work of God not helping it because when our confidence is put in celebrities and those celebrities collapse, when they collapse either morally or doctrinally, the confidence placed in them collapses as well. How many people, and I'm going to say this carefully, but how many people have turned away from Christianity because some celebrity fell and if they turned away, then it tells you what they were actually trusting in. Because if your faith is in someone other than Jesus, you're going to be disappointed at some point. He's the only one that will never fail you. And he's the one on whom you have fixed your hope if you're genuinely saved. If your hope is fixed on some big name preacher or some person, that person is not sufficient to the weight you're placing on. You can't rest there. And if that person collapses, you will collapse with them because they are not the object of your faith. Therefore, they should not be the object of your devotion. You shouldn't, you shouldn't build your life around some celebrity preacher, whether that's big name or here. This is God's church. It's Jesus Christ that's the head of the church, right? If, if the health of this church depended on any human, then we're sick spiritually, not healthy. We're sick spiritually if we depend on some person rather than Jesus Christ. The confidence must be in him, not in anything else. And I think churches like Corinth and churches in our day and churches of which we should aspire not to be, once they start down that path of basing it in man's wisdom, it centers around some celebrity and, and makes it also susceptible to every wind of doctrine and the cunning craftiness of men. The very thing Ephesians 4 says we should not be. Right? Because how many times... How many times do people find somebody who can tickle the ears of an audience and, and they can say things that maybe, man, I've never heard it that way. I've never seen it that way before. And, and that person gets in love with their own voice. And, and so to keep the audience, they have to keep telling them all kinds of things they've never heard before and put a new spin on it. And they gradually move themselves farther and farther away from Christ and him crucified. And the people who are caught up in that wind go with them. Because their confidence is in the wisdom of man rather than in the power of God through his word. We've got to guard our hearts against that because it only takes a little bit of time for a church to get infected like that. Paul hadn't been at Corinth that long ago. Right? He was, he was passing through Galatia and he says, you're so quickly turned away to another gospel. If we think that we're immune 
to the problems that we find in the churches in the New Testament, then we are most susceptible to them. Because let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Right? None of us should discount the danger here. But instead, Paul in verse 5, his motive, right? So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. He wanted them to have a confidence in God's power because then it has a firm foundation. The, the, the foundation of their faith, verse one, the testimony of God, right? It's, it's in the word of the cross. It's the message of Christ and him crucified. That's the firm foundation. That message is never gonna change, right? It's the same message the apostles preached It's the message put in the scriptures. It is the message which we must cling to today. It will never change. There's not an updated version. There's not a gospel 2.0. It's it's here, right? It's the message and it's a firm foundation in God's word and a proper focus in God's work through Christ. If that's the case, your hope is built on the word, your hope is built on Christ, then it's solid. The word is always gonna be true. Jesus is always gonna be faithful, right? You you have no need to look anywhere else because Christ will keep his promises and his promises don't change. They're the same, just like him, yesterday, today, and forever, right? He will remain true, and we can hold fast to that. But it's also the thing that bears lasting fruit, right? Here's the thing we've got to recognize. There can be things that appear to be successful that prove not to be in the long haul. When Jesus told the parable of the four soils, there there were two soils that gave the appearance of fruitfulness. But then it got choked out. It didn't bear fruit. It even says that the seed is those who respond with joy initially, but then get choked out. It's possible to have the appearance of fruitfulness that proves to be empty. Jesus talked about the fact that there's a house, right? Two houses. We sing this. From the ground up, they look the same. Right? The wise man built his house upon the rock, the foolish man upon his sand. From the ground up, they look the same. And when the storm comes, one collapses. Why? Because it wasn't built on the foundation of Christ's word. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. So you know what? The guy next door who built his house looks like he's doing great. It's easy to look at and go, oh man, that, see, see, it works. We, we can actually build houses faster than doing it your way, pastor. We can build bigger houses if we just get with the times. And then the rains come. It's gone. Look good, but it's disastrous. Jesus warned about that. He talked about fruit that remains. He talked about true discipleship continuing in the word. The apostle Paul and Barnabas, when they went out on their missionary journey, before they went out, Paul, uh, Barnabas goes to, uh, to Antioch and he's, he urges them to remain faithful to the Lord. And when Paul and 
Barnabas come back on the first missionary journey. They talked to the churches that they had planted and they urged them to continue in the faith. They wanted to see them stabilized there because Paul actually viewed this as a part of whether or not he was, and I'm gonna put it in air quotes, successful. You can find this in the letter to the Galatians, to the letter to the Philippians, to the letter to the Thessalonians, that Paul was concerned that if they abandoned the gospel and turned away, then his labor had been in vain, right? He had gone in and he preached the gospel and, and it seemed like everything happened and wow, look at what God did. And he leaves and he says to the Galatians, You've deserted the gospel for another gospel. I'm in labor with you again so that my ministry won't be in vain. He's worried that what looked like good fruit wasn't. I mean, do we understand this? Like, so when, when some, some ministry that's willing to do all the stuff that I've been talking about, all of a sudden poosh, explodes, and we go, you can't argue with success. I mean, you can say whatever you want, but it's working. Are we so sure? I mean, is, is the real assessment in yet? The next chapter, Paul's going to go, there's going to be labor that goes into the fire and it's consumed as wood, hay, and stubble versus gold, silver, and precious stones. There's some work, not according to God's will, that won't be revealed as such until the judgment seat of Christ. That's why in chapter four, he says, stop judging before the time. Right? If your assessment is success, then you're going to be tempted to become pragmatic. The standard that God sets for us is faithfulness so that people's confidence is in God, not in us. That people have come to trust in the living God. And so we need to realize that this passage is incredibly relevant about the faithfulness of gospel ministry rather than the accommodation to the popular methods and messages of our day. We must stick to Christ and him crucified. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that Christ came so that we could have life in him, that he could die on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that we might be brought back into fellowship with you. And it's that cross that we must boast in because it is by which we have been crucified to the world and the world to us. Everything has changed because of Christ and the cross. And that must be true at the center of your people. When we assemble to worship, when we think about how we do the work that you've entrusted to us, help us to fight against the tendency pervasive in our culture to trust in our own ingenuity and creativity. Help us to be people who desperately want to be found faithful because one day 
when we see Jesus, it will be worth it. And until then, the house that's built on the rock is the one that will keep standing. So make us people of the book, people of the cross, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.